This podcast is brought to you by GuestLogix, the leading global provider of ancillary-focused merchandising, payment, and business intelligence technology to the airline industry. To learn how GuestLogix can elevate your ancillary revenue potential, visit www.guestlogix.com. Seth, if you had to pick an airline that you'd least like to compete against right now, would Ryanair make the shortlist? Absolutely. How about Wizz Air? Yeah, sort of the the Eastern European version of, of Ryanair. Well, Lufthansa is dealing with both of them. These two airlines are enjoying serious momentum right now, and they're both aiming for Germany. In this week's Airline Weekly, we talk about the proliferation of low-cost carriers in Germany and how Lufthansa is fighting back. And we talk about how, in addition to Ryan and Wiz, Lufthansa is dealing with Air Berlin, Norwegian, EasyJet. And on the long-haul front, it's fighting fierce competitors like Emirates and Turkish Airlines. We go through it very thoroughly. But as usual, I have a few more questions about this topic. Plus, American Airlines is lighting the fuse on its single reservation system. And how does Little Air New Zealand do so well? And of course, we'll discuss Jennifer Aniston's shower scene. It's all coming up right now in the Airline Weekly Lounge. stopping by. I'm Jason Cottrell, and joining me is the invaluable Seth Kaplan, my colleague of 10 plus years at Airline Weekly. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, it only feels like a 20. (laughs) In this week's cover story, we detail how Lufthansa is facing a slew of competition on many fronts. Is this the beginning of a new chapter for Lufthansa? Maybe one where the competition is even worse than what it's been? Well, it's certainly different than it's been, and 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 at least no better. Uh, you know, I mean, look, there are airlines that it no longer competes with. Uh, you know, Europe has had its share of consolidation, nothing like the U.S., but you know, they're not competing against oh, Spanair or Malev airlines like those. But yeah, on the other hand, you ha- you have all this fierce competition, uh, you know, on the short haul front, of course, from EasyJet and Ryanair and, and Voiling and others, uh, w- which are, are particularly important uh, for Lufthansa because, you know, short haul matters to it in a way that short haul doesn't matter quite as much, let's say, to British Airways, uh, you know, which can just more easily fill flights out of London Heathrow with local passengers, you know, hubs like Frankfurt and Munich can. Uh, uh, count more on, on connecting passengers. And then, of course, on the long haul front, you know, most notably Norwegian competing for many of the same passengers, many of the same origin and destination connecting passengers, uh, certainly, as well as other tour operator linked airlines, you know, Condor and others. So, yeah, they're they're fighting a war on multiple fronts, a war uh, uh, certainly at, at least as fierce as, as any that they've fought over the years. Oil prices are certainly enabling low-cost carriers to attack Lufthansa, but they must also be helping Lufthansa survive those attacks as well. So does Lufthansa want oil prices to remain low? Yeah, you know, they're they're an interesting case, right? I mean, there, there are certainly airlines that unambiguously benefit when oil is cheap. Uh, most low-cost carriers are, are are in that category. You know, we've we've talked about it in other episodes, Jason. Where you know, just just the you know proportionality of of 
fuel prices as a percentage of an overall air uh, of an airline's overall cost base, you know, means that the lowest cost competitors benefit most when fuel is cheap because they can differentiate themselves on cost more. You know, they, that's where they have their cost advantages are in the non-fuel areas and those areas matter more. Right. So, it, you know, if, if you're Ryanair, you are very much celebrating low fuel prices, or at least you are as soon as your hedges wear off. Right. Um, other airlines that are based in regions, you know, where revenue is suffering. You know, we think of the Gulf carriers. Uh, you know, we think maybe of an airline like like Aeroflot. Let's say those are ones where where the story is very much mixed. Uh, look, Lufthansa is, is benefiting, you know, very much from from uh, cheap fuel, despite you know having some bad hedges. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, let's face it, some of this competition that we're seeing. Uh, is is driven by low fuel prices. Um, an airline like Norwegian is one very much something else we've we've mentioned in other weeks. Uh, you know, an airline that that's really getting some tailwinds from this. That, uh, gosh, uh, you know, no matter what they said a year ago, there was no question that they were really bleeding uh, in those long haul markets. And now, you know, even if they're not earning windfall profits, I mean, all kinds of things become viable with fuel prices where they are right now that weren't otherwise viable. So on one hand, sure, Lufthansa can itself go in and start some of, you know, which you might say is kind of marginal flying, you know, uh, the uh, some of the Eurowings long haul flying, some of the Lufthansa branded long haul flying, you know, to Tampa and that sort of thing. It's stuff that that, you know, might have been very, very difficult with expensive fuel and less so with uh, with cheap fuel. But on the other hand, uh, sort of its reason for having to do this is, is very much driven by a lot of that competition, which in turn is enabled by by cheap fuel. On balance, uh, hard to say that they uh, you know would wish fuel would be more expensive, but uh, but no question, more of a mixed picture for them uh, than it is for some of their lower cost competitors. So having said all that, do you question whether low-cost long-haul is the solution for Lufthansa? Well, you always have to question it, Jason, You know, and, until somebody proves that it works just because it's been so difficult. Uh, you know, the, the burden of proof is just kind of always on the airline doing it. But again, as I mentioned, gosh, uh, you know, you really can throw the playbook out the window, the playbook that we thought we had learned over the past decade or so now that fuel is, is cheap again. Uh, but... Look, I mean, this is going to be marginal flying, uh, and and it's just a question of whether the very low costs that that they may indeed achieve uh, through all of the productivity measures that they're putting into place, uh, you know, lower paid crews and and so forth, uh, you know, higher density cabins, all of that, you know, whether those low costs will more than compensate for what will certainly be revenues that well, let's just say they're not going to be all that high. Let's talk about Air New Zealand. They're doing fine. They reported a 10% operating margin just recently, and they're forecasting even better. But they have a small domestic market and poor geography. How do they do so well? Yeah, re really one of the remarkable stories in the global airline industry. You know, not one that you would pick if you just looked at this airline, uh, you know, look at their geography, uh, look at their, you know, small local population, you know, not New Zealand, not all that populous of country. Um, and, uh, you know, you say, how could they do it? Um, and yet they do. Uh, they, they put up very strong profit. Uh, an airline that had turned itself around, you know, it was was in very bad shape uh, oh, even before 9-11. And uh, yeah, well, they are, uh, you know, first of all, 
very quickly modernizing their fleet. Uh, you know, they're they're flying now 787-9 Dreamliners, which are uh, you know just very very low unit cost aircraft. Uh, they've been very innovative in terms of their product. Uh, you know, they they have um, uh, you know a popular not only business class like uh, like most global carriers, but uh, premium economy. Uh, they were one of the earlier adopters of that. Uh, they have these sky couches. I think some people are familiar with in in economy, where uh, you know you basically kick out the leg rest and and can lay across three seats rather comfortably. Uh, that they offer, you know, particularly when when uh, uh, you know it makes sense to them on a flight that might not fill up every seat. Hey, get some extra revenue essentially for uh, for the empty seats, things like that. Uh, just a very well-managed airline uh, and an airline that does a good job uh, working with uh, the, the, the tourism trade in New Zealand and, and bringing in inbound tourists. And, uh, you know, and where you do have a local population, even if it isn't huge, uh, is, is reasonably well off and, and eager to see the world. And, and uh, a lot of them do that on, on their local airline. Is their geography that bad? Well, it, it's it's not central, you know. Uh, if, if you think of uh, you know what airlines are like Emirates, you know, tout how they're from their perspective in the center of the world, you know, with only so many hours flying of 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 all these various destinations. You know, Air New Zealand is not an airline that sort of sits at the at the center of many global connecting traffic flows, and and it's even rather distant from other places that are in global terms, not all that far, you know, I mean, it, it, it takes a while to fly there even from Singapore, let's say, never mind, you know, from, from other parts of the world. So, so geography certainly isn't their strength, although on the other hand, at least that does partly limit competition. American Airlines will pass a milestone this week with the cutover of its reservation system and the end of U.S. Airways. These cutovers have been dicey in the past, but this one has a better chance of going smoothly, doesn't it? It does. Uh, you know, American, to its credit, uh, seems to have learned uh, some lessons from what to do in terms of the cutovers that have gone well over the years and, and, and frankly, more about what not to do, because, as you mentioned, these things more often than not have not gone well. Uh, you know, you look at oh, the Delta Northwest cutover, that one went pretty well, but United Continental certainly did not. And for that matter, let's not forget that this same management team, you know, was running U.S. Airways when the America West U.S. Airways reservation systems cutover happened. And that, too, was uh, was far from a success. So uh, when looking for lessons of what not to do, they can draw from even their own personal mistakes. But, yeah, um, First of all, uh, you know, we're talking about cutover, but even that's kind of a little bit of a misnomer here because, you know, one thing they've done to try to mitigate the risk is that this is not going to be quite the big bang uh, this weekend that most of these migrations over the years have been. Uh, it's been really more precisely, it's, it's the culmination of a three-month, what they've called a drain-down period, where, where things have gradually been transitioned. And, uh, you know, more specifically, for the past three months, uh, you know, if people made reservations to fly on, you know, what was the U.S. Airways side of the company for beyond this weekend, 
those reservations have happened in the American airline system, which is the surviving system uh, after this migration. Uh, so basically, the upshot there is that whereas normally an airline has to transfer all the reservations from the airline that's you know that's that's moving to the other system into the surviving system. In this case, the only reservations that they have to transfer are those that were made more than three months ago. And because most people actually don't make more reservations more than three months before they fly, it, it, it's just a small minority of reservations that actually have to be migrated uh, from U.S. airways into Americans' Sabre system. Having said that, I, I mean, look, you still have airport agents and reservations agents who are going to be working on a new system uh, and, and, you know, training issues. That's another huge area where, you know, that, that causes these things to go wrong. But there, too, uh, you know, they've done some things to mitigate that. And actually, uh, you know, rather interestingly, they've they've taken the U.S. Airways user interface that those workers are familiar with and, and they've they've adapted it to work on top of the american system so that those people will still be working in an environment that's somewhat more familiar to them you know they're not suddenly going to be taking care of customers in a in a very unfamiliar system so you know there too kind of interesting I, i'm not aware of that having been done before and they'll be able to just kind of keep using that uh, you know for the foreseeable future um and you know, even more broadly than that, just the fact, remember what I said, they're adopting the American airline system, the system of the larger of the two pre-merger airlines. And when you look at when things have gone rather well and when they haven't in the past, you know, Delta Northwest, they adopted the Delta systems, e even though, by the way, there were some people at Delta who felt like, you know, the, the Northwest systems were better. But the decision was, you know what, Delta's the bigger airline. You know, would you rather have to swap out two thirds of your equipment? You know, if you take the smaller airline systems or one third of your equipment, would you rather have to retrain two thirds of your employees or one third? So basically just less disruptive to keep the bigger airline systems. America West U.S. Airways, I mentioned before, guess what? They kept the America West systems, the systems from the smaller airline, and that one didn't go well. United Continental, same thing. They kept the systems from Continental. Now, I don't mean to oversimplify. I mean, there are other reasons why those didn't go well. But a rather good starting point in terms of just kind of giving yourself a head start is to stick with the bigger airline systems, and, and that, too, is what they've done here. Now, having said all that, these things are still never easy. So uh, yeah, I'm not going to certainly going to sit here and predict that it's all going to go smoothly, but at least they have indeed uh, given themselves a shot between all that and just the fact that they're doing this during a rather off peak time of the year uh, that for things to go rather well. This brings us to the numbers portion of our program. We ran a chart this week packed with data about capacity trends in the Americas. Basically, we looked at 16 carriers in the Western Hemisphere and their 10 busiest airports, and we enumerated how much the airline was growing or shrinking in capacity at those airports. So let's be clear here. All the numbers that follow are scheduled departing seats for the current fourth quarter versus last year's fourth quarter. Some of the numbers were pretty impressive. Here's one that jumped out at me. Both Air Canada and WestJet were showing capacity increases in Calgary. Air Canada is up 9%, WestJet up 10%. That's pretty normal, seeing as how airlines around the world are adding capacity in the wake of low oil prices. But what I found interesting was that we're seeing strong growth in Calgary, a city very much driven by the energy industry. 
Is this just a case of the macro story outweighing the micro story? Yeah, Jason, some of that along with just the, the, the lag time that goes along with airline capacity planning. Uh, yeah, part of it, as you mentioned, uh, airlines are growing. Uh, and these airlines are, are growing. I just took a look at some DOME schedule data, which, by the way, is the source of, of all the data that, that you mentioned, all the airport data. And um yeah, uh, you know, WestJet and Air Canada, of course, both growing. Air Canada actually more rapidly uh, by you know, in, in available seat kilometer terms than than WestJet. And even having said that, though, uh, that growth in Calgary is greater than the average growth for both of those airlines. And that, yeah, you could say that's surprising in the context that uh, you know fuel prices are down. The energy industry very much under pressure in Calgary, just as it is in a place like, oh, let's say Houston. Uh, but Houston, in fact, is not growing rapidly. So that's what you would expect. Not the case in Calgary. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, largely just the case that, um, uh, you know, we are now just more than a year into this whole new era of cheap fuel prices. And and it's really just in recent months that uh, that, you know, airlines have have started making plans based on, oh, hey, you know, maybe fuel is going to be cheap for a long time. So a lot of the capacity that we see uh, for the current quarter um, w was simply planned before, you know, the world kind of got into this mindset of, you know, maybe this is going to be a cheap oil era uh, for a while um, and, uh, yeah, you know, they've both done well there. They both see that as a, uh, as a strategically important place. It's of course, WestJet's uh, headquarters city, Calgary. Um, but Air Canada competes very vigorously for, uh, you know, for that ed energy industry, corporate traffic, for example, which, you know, despite the pressure it's under remains uh, a very, very important sector for both airlines and a sector that you know Air Canada is not willing to 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 just concede to WestJet. But um, having said all that, yeah, uh, definitely interesting. Probably not something I would have guessed if you had asked me to, uh, to to guess the numbers without having seen them. Another one that interested me was Atlanta. Spirit is up 158 percent there, and Frontier is up 172 percent. Meanwhile, Delta is up a very modest two percent, and Southwest is down five percent. Do you have some color behind that? Yeah, well, a lot of that is just, you know, what, what's the size of the base that you're growing from? You know, uh, uh, it would be impossible for, for uh, you know, for Delta to grow 172 percent in Atlanta because of its size there. Uh, you know, so, so uh, you know, Spirit and Frontier growing from a small base. Um, but but related actually to what the other number that you mentioned, Southwest shrinking, you know, basically Southwest at one point had very big plans for Atlanta. I mean, gosh, they bought AirTran partly to 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 muscle their way into Atlanta. And for all the things that have gone rather well for Southwest in recent years, uh, you know, Atlanta is not one of those things uh, for for a whole variety of reasons that could fill an entire other show. You know, the AirTran acquisition um, uh you know, did not work out as well for Southwest uh, as, as as it hoped rather clearly. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they are shrinking in Atlanta uh, and that has left, quite frankly, a vacuum for other airlines to fill. And, and that's what Spirit and Frontier are doing. So, you know, you add it all up and you have an airport that's, you know, kind of growing uh, very modestly, uh, but driven uh, when you break it down by by wildly different numbers, uh, you know, the, the ultra LCZ is growing very quickly. Delta growing modestly, but in percentage terms, uh, you know, a modest growth by Delta actually still adds you know, quite a few new uh, new seats. And uh, and yeah, Southwest uh, shrinking 
rather significantly. Moving to Brazil, it's not surprisingly a pretty grim story. We talked about the economy there last week, but I just thought I'd share the numbers because they are staggering. LATAM is down 31% and 12% at Rio de Janeiro's two airports. And Gol is down at all of its top 10 airports. Do you have anything to add here? Any reason for hope in Brazil? Well, yeah, in terms of airline profits, the reason for hope is, is precisely what you just said, you know, capacity cuts. I mean, these airlines are doing what you should do when, when revenues are under this much pressure. Uh, they are cutting, uh, you know, trying to cut their way to, to profitability there. And, and really what you have in Brazil, Jason, is, is a race to the bottom between, uh, you know, falling revenues. That's the bad part. But now falling capacity, which to one degree or another uh, will help prop up unit revenues. Uh, you, know, you know, we've seen it in other parts of the world, most notably in the U.S., where airlines, you know, did cut their way to profitability, and and that's what these airlines are are doing in a rather serious way. So, uh, so let's see if they can manage to win that race. Uh, you know, certainly those are not modest cuts; those are big cuts that you mentioned. And, um, uh, you know, so so if things at least stabilize somewhat there, uh, as, as you know, there are some reasons for cautious optimism they may do, uh, you know, we, we, we could see these airlines turn things around. And finally, I want to talk about the biggest subject in the airline industry last week, and that is, of course, Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> She's appearing in an Emirates ad, and if you haven't seen it, the ad starts with her wandering around a dreary-looking airplane looking for a shower. She asks the flight attendants to direct her to the shower, and they start diabolically laughing at her. And of course, she wakes up from her nightmare and she's in an Emirates lie flat bed where they, of course, do have a shower and a bar to get a perfect cocktail and so forth. And before I get to my question, I got to say, it's a really well done spot. She performs it well and she was perfectly cast for this and just terrific execution. Um, We said in Airline Weekly, it appears to be a U.S. airline for the nightmare portion of the ad. Do you think the recent disagreement between the Gulf carriers and the U.S. major carriers affected the tone of the ad at all, or is that just my imagination? Yeah, you know, probably not. I mean, you know, in the sense that this is what these airlines have always touted, that they, uh, you know, in their view and and in the view of plenty of global business travelers, have, have, have better onboard products. Um, and, and so, you know, now that's, that's part of, uh, the, the argument that they make is look, uh, you know, you're trying to keep us out of the marketplace because we have a, uh, you know, a, a better product that we deliver at a, at a reasonable cost to consumers. Uh, so, so yeah, sure. It all relates, uh, in that regard. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, mostly, I mean, we've seen, you know, uh, Kobe Bryant a few years ago, uh, you know, selling Turkish airlines and, and, uh, you know, not, not a new thing for a U.S. celebrity, uh, to be engaged in, in, in trying to sell the onboard product of a, uh, of a global airline that, that, that thinks it's, it's, uh, it does have a better product than the, uh, than the U.S. carriers. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. The, the ad was, was quite entertaining. And as they say in Hollywood, you should always leave them wanting more. So let's wrap with that. Uh, Thanks, Seth. And we'll see you back here next week in the Airline Weekly Lounge. Have you ever taken a shower on a plane? Uh, Only in my dreams, not nightmares. I once had a drink spilled on me, but that's about the closest. (laughs) 